Okay, I think it was about three minutes. Close enough. <clears throat> okay. Oh, once I let you go, I'll never get you back, will I? All right. Just name some of the stories that you remembered. Say it again. Uh, yeah, we're going to do that one this afternoon. Joseph and his brothers, because that is such a rich, rich, rich story. Just like every family I know, it is really good. Okay, what else? Woman at the well. Jacob and Esau. Prodigal son and the one who didn't go away. Say it again. Woman caught in adultery. Ah, Isaac and Ishmael. Thanks. Oh yeah, Jesus on the cross. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Nice, nice. Very good. Say it again. Barnabas and Saul. Oh, yeah, there's that little. <laughs> and the apple, Stephen. Stephen and the, yeah. Yep, Pharisees. God and Israel. Okay, so, so there is not a lack. What you're saying is there's not a lack of attention in our biblical resources to human uh, suffering, particularly suffering that arises when we are, um, when we battle with one another or when we battle with God. And we're going to come back to that one. Um, but there's not a lack in our biblical witness to the fact that people are human beings who try to do the best they can and sometimes really don't do it well. That is just the fact. And this notion about companioning, if you think about God's companioning with us and our companioning with one another in the name of God, not just because we're good, righteous people, but because we're doing it in the name of God, that there is some deep, deep resonance way down in our soul to this God whom we join on a journey and who joins us. And that is not a small thing. I want to remind you of uh, a piece of scripture that um, comes from Exodus 34. This is after Moses and God have an encounter with, Moses and God encounter one another quite often in ways that actually are quite enlivening and enraging. Uh, at one hand, you have Moses who seems to be the, uh, we like to think of him as a saint of the faith, I suppose, but really a human being who would rather not do what he's called to do and who's very clear that the gifts and graces that he has do not match what it is that God thinks God is doing in the world or what Moses thinks God is doing in the world or whatever. So this particular piece of text comes to us uh, in the 34th chapter of uh, Exodus. And it's after Moses goes to intercede on, you know, the people wander into the desert. What happens? Just a reminder. In the desert, what happens? They, they whine. <laughs> that was well said, whine. And they complain, and they do, yeah. And stiff-necked people. And they remind Moses that they are in the middle of a desert only because they're following 
and if um, they were going to die, why did, they, why did Moses bring them all the way out there to die instead of letting them be slaves in a foreign land, right? So after that encounter, um, the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone. And I'm going to just read a little bit from this. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones. You'll remember these were the ones that the former ones were destroyed because yeah now this is an interesting part of this why weren't they destroyed really they were tablets of stone that somehow gave instructions I'm not going to call them laws and rules because then we get into trouble but instructions on how best to live a covenantal relationship but anyway, I digress here. Okay, so I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. <laughs> so what do we hear in God right there? Uh, yeah, let's do this again. And I am going to hold you accountable. There's this little notion of accountability in forgiveness work that has not been um, played on enough, I think which is why, of course, I get to play on it. It's that a, a forgiveness becomes a structure of accountability where you do not escape from the truth. And that accountability is important in the process, and we'll come back to that. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. And do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. Now, that's a very strange instruction. I don't know exactly what it means or what the writer intended it for, to, for it to mean, but it does strike me that there's a way in which God is inviting Moses as the representative to be in direct conversation with God. It's not like God is going to send down a third party to mediate this necessarily at this point in the story. Let's not jump too far ahead. <laughs> right? But God says, I want to deal directly. That's a significant piece. I want to deal with you directly. Because you broke my tablets. Okay. So Moses kept two tablets of stone like the former ones, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded, took in his hand the two tablets. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. It does not say not anger. It says slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. The thousand, not the first, the second, the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents unto the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now that's troubling. 
We will come back to that. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. interesting conversation between Moses and God. And on the one hand, God chiding Moses perhaps and saying, hey, you guys, you're kind of wandering in the desert and not doing so well. I gave you some tablets. Yeah, broke them up. Let's try this again. But not let's just try this again. Let's remember the past because it happened. You can't deny it. You can't ignore it. You can't wipe it from memory. It happened, and I'm willing to try this one again with you, but there are some consequences to this. But then what do you hear in Moses? It's that last little piece. Moses stands up and says, okay, I get that, and keep walking with us. Don't let us off the hook, but keep walking with us and make us yours. Moses and God join one another in an interesting way. Joining is an important piece of forgiveness work, but it's an important piece of relationality. When you join something, what do you do? What do you do when you join a church? Say it again. Say it again. Belong. You belong. Thank you. Yes. You belong. And, and how do you know you belong? Because you get to serve on a committee. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Say more. One more sentence. Very nice, very nice. And it's not just one way, right? So Moses is saying, okay, I'll be yours if you will be mine. God's saying, I'll take you on if. It's not necessarily conditional, but it is kind of conditional. I would, I would say it's not, uh, I would not use the word conditional because that's gotten a whole different kind of language around it. I would say this is accountability. That God says, I'm going to try and do the best I can, and I want you to try to do the same. You will belong to me, and I will belong to you, but I think not in that mutual or not in that exclusive way that says there is only one way to worship or one God or one Lord, as if all the other religions of the world don't really know what they're doing. But it is in the way that says, we are going to be so connected that you cannot help but live a life with me and I with you. I can't get rid of you either way around. Now, that's a powerful moment of joining. This notion of joining actually has some deep roots in um, how we think about what it means to, to join a church or to join a conference. 
Um, I'm a member of the Rocky Mountain Conference, although I was ordained in the Wisconsin Conference, and I journeyed from one place to another in a kind of odd way. And when I was in Colorado, because I thought I would stay there for the rest of my life, because it, where else would you live if you could live anywhere except in Colorado, you know? Um, I joined the conference because I believed in that conference. And I had to go through and fill out all that paperwork again. How many of you know that paperwork? <clears throat> and I said to my friend, who was making me do it, <laughs> do I really have to do this? And his response was so perfect. If you want to be a part of us, we want to be a part of you. And we have to know who you are other than that you teach over there. We have to know you in some way. So although I'm oftentimes late, I send in my reports at the end of the year and tell them that I'm still a good person, and I'm still doing work in their name, and they claim me on good days. They claim me. That's covenant of a certain kind. And I think if we remember this notion of covenant as we think about forgiveness, it helps us think about the work that is yet to do in our own personal lives, in our communities, in the world, uh, and beyond. Okay, let me stop and see if that raises anything anybody wants to, uh, this is gonna be interactive, so questions, thoughts, I'm gonna make sense. Mm, a covenant mm. with God that's unbreakable yeah, yeah, yeah. on God's part regardless of what we do. So nice. How does that work here? Yeah, so nice. <laughs> I love that question. Could we just skip it? Because that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I can repeat the question. So, there, um, so the question is about, <clears throat> uh, and one understanding of covenant is that it's uh, bound forever, if you will, and that God does that better than human beings. Mm -hmm. Is that a kind of fair way to say it? But it's also true in um, our personal relationships. Uh, Walter Brueggemann long ago did this really lovely little article that I have, uh, it was in a little UCC journal that if you can find it, you're like, you have a really good librarian, you might be able to find it. But he talked about um, human beings as covenant makers, breakers, and remakers. What I wanna suggest is that if we take this notion of covenant to uh, rigidly, we begin to say, well, you can't really change because then you've broken the covenant. As in, um, uh, you can't change the dynamics of something because the covenant is established. And what I think is probably more true about God, at least my experience of God, especially in this piece about I'm steadfast, I'm going to get angry, I anger slowly, but I'm going to get angry, is that God understands the dynamics of kind of making, breaking, and remaking covenant in ways that I think can capture our imagination. Part of the forgiveness, it's, the, it's a really lovely question because part of the problem in forgiveness work is that we assume either that the covenant becomes so rigid that people have to live up to our expectations of what they think, what we think they've promised in this covenant, or it becomes, um, well, I'm just going to break this covenant and walk away. And neither one seems to be very helpful for me, very useful for me. So um, uh, I'm going to, uh, so think about this for a moment. Part of what 
forgiveness does as a structure of accountability is it reminds us about covenants that we've broken, even minor ones, or principles that we've not quite lived up to, even minor ones. And it brings us into the possibility of finding ways to repair or mend without pretending it never happened. So um, sometimes the hurts and the pains are kind of uh, easy to get over. If you accidentally back into my little pickup out there, accidentally, <laughs> accidentally, I can go, okay, that's all right. If you intentionally take your great big car and hit my pickup because you don't like it, that would be a different thing. But if you go after someone I love, yeah, then you're in trouble. Or if you go after an idea that I hold deeply. So now, this is where forgiveness becomes more than just interpersonal, like I hurt you, you hurt me, let's figure it out. If you go after an idea that I hold deeply, a principle, a commitment, a value that I hold deeply, and you go after it, especially if you attack it personally or attack me in the process, then we got some forgiveness work to do. And I can never come back from it in the same way, or, nor can you. The relationship itself changes. So forgiveness is always relational. You, can, you wouldn't need forgiveness if you didn't have relationships, whether it's with the earth or with human beings around you or family members. You would not need forgiveness if you did not have human relationships. But somehow in God's great wisdom, in the richness of God's creation, God has given in us ways of being in relatedness with one another, with the earth, with communities, that are not perfect, thanks be to God. I really think that's part of what I would call a design of God's intention. That God does not intend for us to have a perfect, harmonious, easy, simple way of being. That part of the richness is indeed the fact that we have feelings that can be hurt. And that they don't have to kill us. They're feelings that are hurt, and we might find ways to mend or repair or recovenant. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great question. Anything else kind of bubbling up at the moment? Okay, at your tables, you should have gotten a piece of paper, and if you didn't get one, I have more, um, like this. There's some back there. Thank you. <clears throat> and we've already, uh, what, <laughs> because I don't teach in a linear fashion and you didn't get a lecture, we've already done some of this stuff, all right? So we're just going to kind of remind ourselves about what we've done. So I want to say just one more piece about this, um, the relationality of forgiveness. Uh, you don't have to actually do the forgiveness work with the person who continues to hurt you. It only means that you have to have relationships around you that help you do the work. 
and this afternoon when we talk a little bit more about what the work looks, I do think forgiveness is work. What the work looks like, um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But you cannot do the forgiveness process or a forgiving life without having committed relationships of some kind, whether it's, and I, and I think it's better to think about multiple structures of relationships rather than one relationship. Sometimes we get so stuck on the one relationship that's most important to us that we forget and neglect some of the other relationships in our lives. Relationship with God, relationship with community, relationship with communities of faith, a particular community of faith, relationships with people sitting in the pew that we wish would go join some other church. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> relationships with people that we naturally just kind of go, oh, I really like that person. I want to go to lunch with them every day. Well, maybe not every day, but every now and then. Relationships with family or with chosen family, with partners, spouses, children who sometimes we wish would skip this part of their life and get to the next part that's going to be better. <laughs> so it's, it's relational. It's always relational. And for me, the forgiveness itself gives us a deeper relationship to our spirit and our spiritual life, to God, to self, to other, to neighbor. But I also want to think about the complexity of the ways in which we are hurt, that not every hurt is the same. Not every kind of assault on our human beingness is the same. Uh, brokenness, uh, especially <coughs> injuries that are, that we, th I want to, I try to stay away from cause language that are caused by because it's usually not that simple. Relationships with people that we love the most, when those relationships experience some kind of rupture or fracture, or disappointment can cause deep pain. At the same time, institutions that we deeply love can cause us deep pain. A, a church. Um, <clears throat> part of the work I do is working with churches and uh, folks who have experienced some kind of clergy misconduct, whether it's somebody embezzling money from a church or, or sexual misconduct. And what strikes me is that the depth of the pain in those circumstances represents the depth of our longing for the perfect community, or the longing for the community that we will never find, but that we hope to move toward. And it is just a kind of, it is just real. It is not right or wrong. It is just very real and painful. There's usually a violation of trust of some kind, and it could be intentional or unintentional. So it could be a violation that's fairly intentional as in um, we are going to ostracize those people because those people are not like us for some reason, whoever those people are in your world. That's pretty intentional. When you start talking about things like systemic injustices, racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism, all the isms that we know of in the world, those can oftentimes be quite unintentional. Like I suspect if I, knowing this crowd is a good um, Methodist quadrilateral kind of crowd. If I, <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. If I were to say, um, for the most part, 
we intend not to be racist in our world. I suspect I would get agreement on that in this room. The reality is that each one of us who particularly walk around with white skin on cannot help but be so embedded in the cultures in which we grew up that we oftentimes don't even recognize the racism we have or the racism that we embody or the way it works itself out in the world. We just do not think. Doesn't mean we're bad people, it means we have a lot of work to do. So that's an unintentional perhaps, but it still does harm and that's the point, it does harm. So that it's less about the intentionality of someone's acts and more about the harm that it creates, the ruptures, the kind of uh, feelings of shame or blame or whatever else it is that uh, are a result of that. And I think I've talked about everything else there. We've talked a little bit about joining God. And part of what I hope you'll do a little bit in your um, time today at some point is think about um, what kind of God are you joining? Or what kind of God are you asking to join you in this journey? What kind of God do you think you have? And what do you hope that God isn't? Like, I hope that God isn't retributive. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I hope that's not the God I have. But every now and then I kind of wonder sometimes, like, really, God? Really? So expand your horizon and conversation with God. Don't be quite so convinced of the God that you think you know that you miss the pieces that you don't really know yet. Because that's part of a spiritual journey, I think, is to discover the richness and vastness of a God that you will never know enough and yet there is enough of that God to go around. So think about who is this God that you're joining and what are you asking God to join you in? <clears throat> I'll talk a little bit about intentionality at that point. I think God does have intentions for us. Some of you remember the old book by uh, Leslie Weatherhead, wasn't it? The Will of God different kind of what, helpful book. I want to kind of put the will of God over there for just a minute. I want to talk about God's intentions because I think that is another way of getting at the same conversation, a little bit different conversation. What is it that you think God intends for this world? Uh, start bigger rather than with me, me, me with this world. What do you think God intends for the earth? What do you think God intends for your church or your community or the community that you're not a part of but that's right down the road about 10 blocks? What is it that God intends and how do you join God's intentions for the world? How do you find ways not to do the work of God, although that is what we're doing, how do you find ways to be curious about what God intends? Because if you think you already know what God intends or what God's will is, I, I can guarantee you, yes, um, about the time you think you've got God cornered, there is a bigger God than you know, right? So 
be curious. If you can have a state of curiosity in your life, your spiritual life will get deeper and richer. I guarantee it. Curiosity is a wonderful gift, not just in children, but in adults who've forgotten how to be curious because we have to figure everything out. So remain curious. What is it that God's intending for us in conversations about immigration? Not is it what is it that we should do or what should the country do at the moment? What is it that we think God might be intending? And then you can figure out, now how can I join that in my own way because everybody's gonna do it a little differently? And how do I talk about those intentions with others? We've talked some about the biblical themes that, are, uh, that I explored in the book a little bit. These are not the only four, but they are ones that I uh, kind of come back to over and over again. Um, God is the initiator of forgiveness in the biblical text. And yet, God does not just automatically do a blanket forgiveness kind of thing. God says, well, you screwed up those tablets and you broke them, and could we do this again? And I'm going to remember this because sins do have consequences. And that's not the end of the story, right? It's just a piece of the story. So God offers forgiveness, and in some ways that is the ground on which we stand, the one that helps us kind of move into it. God holds us accountable, but does not hold us hostage. Now let's just linger there a minute. What's the difference between being held accountable and being held hostage? Your turn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ah, nice, nice. Nice, so there's a threat piece that um, gets lifted up in the hostage taking. Yeah. Say more. Ah, very nice. Okay, so we talk about, uh, in my field, we talk about how do you activate agency in human beings, as in you have, um, you can actually make choices. Not every choice, but you get to make some choices in your life. So in thinking about accountabilities, there are ways in which we get to choose how to negotiate the accountability, even. If you're held hostage, you don't get much choice. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, nice. Yeah, very nice. Ah, good, that there's a kind of trustworthiness about God that says, okay, we're, we're in this together, and I don't even think it's God saying, I know you're gonna screw up, and here's when I know you're gonna screw up. That's kind of like, I don't think, some people do. I think it's more like, we're gonna hold one another accountable, and at times you will feel like I fail you, just like I feel like you fail me. And that's an accountability structure, and we will deal with that. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. I think this one is incredibly important in human relationships. If you have been in a human relationship where you felt like you were held hostage to something, 
I hope that you found a way to get out of that relationship or change the nature of that relationship or do something. Because if you're being held hostage by something, by a feeling, by even a compulsion to do the right thing, it sometimes leads us in ways that are not healthy and whole. Um, let me give you an illustration. So I've uh, done a lot of work with intimate partner violence and domestic violence. Being told that constantly that if you don't do this, you will be harmed in some way, or not being told but knowing that if you don't have supper on the table at a particular time and it doesn't quite look the way it should or the kids don't have their homework done, you or somebody else will get physically harmed is a way of holding someone hostage. It's a way of holding something over them and in ways that they have no agency or power to respond, at least in a moment. Another way that that works itself out is um, after, usually after a battering situation, for example, there's this little moment of time when you might have a chance to change something, but it's not too long before usually there's a, what I would call a false forgiveness, um, which is, I promise I will never do this again, or I will go to therapy at least once in the next 50 years or something. There's some kind of promise, and the promise becomes the hostage taker. My wanting to be in the relationship that I thought I could have takes hold in a way that does not give me energy to act differently. And it's not about blaming people for what they do or do not do at that moment in time. It is that the vision of the relationship that I most want is stronger than the reality of the bruises on my body. That's a hostage-taking kind of thing. So I think part of the peace in human relationships is to teach people how to disagree with charity and love how to not take out the disagreements or the visions or the um, conflicts, how not to take it out of one another's soul. And that is a really hard thing in our culture, particularly at this time, and in our church, particularly at this time. Because we are so wounded in some ways that it's hard for us to kind of stand up and feel the ground under our feet and to remember to breathe in God's grace, and instead we find ourselves being held by fear or by the fear of what-ifs or by the harm of language or by the shame and guilt. And finding ways out of that is a really challenging thing. Um, let me move to the bottom part because <clears throat> I think I have seven more minutes, right? Okay, cool. I want to talk just a moment about the importance of naming wrongs and injustices and then laments. <clears throat> We're going to talk this afternoon a little bit about the power of empathy and perspective taking in forgiveness because if you don't have the ability and capacity for empathy, you're, forgiveness is really hard because <laughs> you have to at some point be able to say, I think I understand at least intellectually why you might have come to this, but you are dead wrong and here's why. If you can't even do that one, then we're, it's really kind of hard. 
and empathy is a capacity that takes some skill. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But before you even get to that point, you have to be able to name the injustice or the hurt or the wrong as you experience it. And you have to name it honestly to yourself and to God, and maybe your therapist or your spiritual director or your best friend, but at least to yourself and to God. Now we have some form formulas for that, and they're found in the laments in the Bible. The laments in the Bible give us some exceptional ways to um, think about how we name what is wrong and how we bring words and voice to some of those pieces. So one of the persons who's influenced me a lot in thinking about suffering and hope and such things is a woman named Dorothy Swela, who's a theologian, some of you may know. She did a nice little chapter in a book, it's the best part of that book, in which she talked about the power of lament and the power of silence before the lament. So she suggests there are kind of three movements in suffering and, and moving from suffering to hope or, or uh, despair to hopefulness. And the first one is genuinely silence. It is that moment when you have no words to actually be able to say what it is that you think you might even be thinking about thinking about. Uh, Wayne Oates, a good pastoral care Southern Baptist guy from the 60s and 70s, used to talk about the God-given anesthetic of the soul. That there are some things so powerful that we cannot take it in in a moment. You'll see this in trauma. People who have just experienced a traumatic death or a trauma in their family or their community, they have no words. And it doesn't matter how hard you encourage them to say, could you tell me what you're thinking, what you're feeling? They'll go, no because it is just part of the process. But after you get through that silence, then you begin to want to find language. And the language ought to be as deep and provocative as you humanly can face. It doesn't mean that it's the language you're gonna share in public in your next sermon, or the language you're gonna share with your best friend even, but it's a language that is intimate between you and God. There are things that I will say to my loved ones particularly my partner, that I would not say to anybody else in the world. Thank goodness. On both sides. <laughs> so it's that deep, deep lamenting, bringing words to what makes you so angry or what hurts so hard or what it feels like inside. And then at the end of the lament, many laments in the ancient, uh, this is not just biblical, it's ancient texts of all kinds, have this format of laments. What happens at the end of a lament? Say it again. Yeah. Yeah, now you're rejoicing. It's the reminder about why you might have hope when it feels so hopeless. So I talk about this as leaning into hope or leaning into a promise that you can't even begin to imagine is going to be there when you really need it. It's that ability to say, um, I trust God, even though at this very moment I have no reason to really do anything but shake my fist at God. But I, I know there's something that I can't quite get to yet, and I'm not there yet, but I'm going to write it down or put it down because it will remind me that this is a journey and this is a moment in time. So we did a lament this morning in worship. We did Psalm 13, which is one of my favorite laments. 
Psalm 13, I'm just going to read it for you because it gives us a... Thank you. I got to find... How long... Go ahead. Somebody got it? How long, O Lord? Okay. See if you can imagine praying this yourself or having somebody else pray it for you. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me, and how long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. But, you got to watch for the holy but, but... I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. It doesn't say I do trust right now. It said in the past I trusted. And sometime maybe in the future I'll get back to that again. I'm going to lean into that. But for this moment, why are you not here when I need you? How long, O Lord, will this go on? So I want to invite you to think about writing a lament not just from, uh, first from your own perspective, but if this is a lament about something, uh, a hurt, a pain, a suffering, a brokenness, to write the lament that somebody else might also want to express that you may not even believe. But if you write it down, it gives you a sense that maybe there's more than one way to think about something. So I'll give you an illustration. Several years ago, one of my friends was uh, involved in a significant relationship, and the person she was involved with had an affair. And we were kind of doing some Lenten stuff in life. It wasn't Lent season, but for her it was. It was Lent. So we did the lament. She wrote the lament. Then I said, so what might be the lament that your friends would give to you? Job's friends, maybe. I don't know. What would be the lament that I might write for you? Because what that does is it reminds people that they are not in it by themselves and that there are friends who also lament. And what might be the lament that the one who has harmed you might write for you? Now, that's a harder one to get to. But if you begin to get there and trust that it's really between you and God and that piece of paper or that computer and maybe your spiritual director or your therapist or a friend, it gives you the freedom to imagine the possibilities of accountability and forgiveness in ways that help you lean into it rather than fighting it all the way. So on the bottom of the paper, I've just given you a couple of questions to kind of continue to reflect on. Um, And that includes perhaps thinking about how you might write a lament or what it is that you do lament. What are the compromises that a particular hurt or pain has caused in your life? What have you lost? And what do you hope for? And what makes you think that God will join you in that journey even though at the moment you may not really believe it. So may the knowledge of the grace of God sink from your heads, the grace, 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 grace of God sink from your heads down to your heart. So it flows out of your hands and your mouth and your ears and your eyes. 
so that this body and this body may be the body of Christ as we walk in this world because the world definitely needs the gift of grace. And the people said, Amen. Amen.